Okay, so we've just watched the video on, on stealing the bike. And I'm seeing at least one thumbs up saying that I, that, that is, is appropriate understanding that the, the distinction between the ways people interacted with the thieves was based not on what was happening, but, was, but what they were thinking, what was in their heads, their, their biases, their racism, and their expectations about what people are like and who criminals might be. And we see even a little bit of a distinction between the genders as well, that, that even the two white individuals, the difference between the man and the woman, the man people sort of treated with suspicion, the woman they, they actively helped. So there's very clearly lines in the sand about how we think about crime and violence and how those those operate in the world. Um, I did see a hand go up. Um, if there's a comment, please make it. Okay, maybe I, I covered it already. Okay. So we're going to continue then to, to look at the slides. Um, there was another video I was going to show you, but it really was doing a lot of the same work as the first one, and I'll, I'll share that with you in when I send the slides to you all. So um, let me upload my slides quickly. Okay. So to as as I've said, we we there's a couple of theories that we're going to look at to try and unpack the ways that we think about and engage with crime and violence. Now, um, the, the, the course readings will take you into thinking about some of these things, but I've already started to, to really engage with you about the ways that we tend to want to create uh, understandings in our heads about who criminals might be. And the examples with the bicycle, I think, is really clear and revealing of who in society tends to become villainized. There are some really nice documentaries uh, coming out of the U.S., for example, about uh, how the, the prison system, in fact, is geared towards certain kinds of criminals. So, for example, the majority of people in jail in the U.S. are black men and um, I will actually share with you some links for for stuff that you can look at in relation to that, because the the ways that we think about crime and violence actually has a real impact on individual lives and on whole communities and on the kind of crime and violence that we then see proliferate. So some of you may. Um, remember the, the banking crisis of 2008 where people lost their homes or their life savings because of the ways that big banks were corrupt, essentially, in, in, particularly in the U.S., but these were multinational banks as well. And nobody is in jail. I think there's one person who was sort of scapegoated, but... Beyond that, the, the majority of people who were in banking at the time and who were getting rich off of other people's suffering have not been 
found guilty. And the converse of that is, is that people who will steal bread um, will be locked up. And this is really important because what we think crime and violence is, do we think of corruption as crime and violence? Um, do we think of systems that um, are not working and that are, are killing people? Do we think of those as violent? And we really do need to consider what we call violence. Would, for example, engineering a pandemic that kills three million people be considered violence? Now, I'm not suggesting that that happened, but if it were to have happened, that um, this was a, the outcome of very dubious scientific engagements um, that have been allowed to continue. I mean, I, I saw a report recently about how scientists are allowed to essentially manufacture vi uh, viruses with the interests of trying to understand pandemics, but then posing enormous risks to the communities that they're based in because those viruses almost always get out, um, that is that considered violence that, you know, it kills people, that people die because of those decisions? Um we need to very closely examine what we consider violence. I saw a story, I think it was yesterday, of a man who got, who got out of prison after 20 years for stealing two shirts. 20 years. I mean, the, the, the kind of uh, ways that we engage with justice is really, it's really not in the interests of of very many people, that, that actually most people are suffering not from somebody stealing two shirts, but from multinational corporations that are destroying the planet and that are um, taking profits that are, are meant to, to build up communities and from... Uh, political structures that are imprisoning people at the borders, you know, that, that is where suffering comes from. Suffering is not, to, you know, somebody stealing two shirts because they needed clothes. So um, we really do need to consider how we think about crime and violence and what the, the causes of crime and violence are and where, where the biggest threat to individual lives is coming from. And to do that, we're going to, as I've said before, look at a couple of uh, key theories. The theories that we're going to start with are theories that are individual based, are individually based theories. So the first one that we're going to look at is a theory called the rational self-interest theory. Now, because these are, are individual theories, they tend to look at um, individuals. So they tend to think about why is this one person committing crime? And the rational self-interest theory is actually fairly self-explanatory in that sense, in that it, it is about individuals who are rationally or logically or using their, 
their conscious, awake minds um, to make decisions that are in their personal self-interest. So the theory, which is a fairly established theory in in, um, social thinking, and by established I mean old, so it's a fairly old theory, it's one that has a lot of support in, in terms of academic support, in terms of social support, and the theory holds that people are violent because they have something to gain from it. So that gain could be a financial gain, it could be an emotional gain, it could be a social gain. So if I kill the person who's going to get the job and I'm next in line, then I I get the job and so I move up the social ladder and I get a salary and other other benefits because of, of committing that violence. Or I, uh, I hurt or injure someone, I'm violent to people because I can um, you know, steal their laptop or their car or you know, their goods of some kind. And so there's some sort of benefit to me that motivates me to do the crime. And that without that benefit, I wouldn't necessarily commit that crime. So it is... Um, coming from the angle that some people have stuff and others do not, but it but it is very much also that these benefits don't only have to be uh, financially based, and because I'm financially or otherwise motivated to commit the crime, if the punishment outweighs the benefit. I will be compelled not to commit that crime. So if I know that um, stealing a loaf of bread is going to get me 100 years in prison, there's really like that I would rather avoid the 100 years in prison than steal the loaf of bread, right? So the, the benefit is much, lo- uh, much smaller than the, the punishment, And this is a theory, therefore, that supports uh, a kind of uh, justice system or a punitive system that is focused on on policing, on courts, on the prisons to distract us from committing uh, crime and to distract us from committing violent crime in particular. So that we need to have those kinds of systems in place and that they need to be strong enough and capable enough to uh, address the kinds of crime and violence that we're seeing in society. So if we're seeing a lot of crime and violence in society, what that is saying is is that our punitive system is not strong enough. It also, what it does, and this is a a theory that um, can explain some things better than others, is it gets us to think about how we can uh, fix crime and violence after it's happened. So it doesn't, it's not a preventative model. It doesn't help us to stop crime and violence before it happens. It's more of, of the kind of saying, okay, when this happens, we're going to react to it in a certain kinds of way, kind of way. And as we know in South Africa, actually we do have a fairly robust uh, 
certainly a very robust constitution and a fairly robust uh, um, criminal uh, criminal sector and policing and, and the criminal courts. But and but we actually still are seeing many examples of crime and violence in our context. So can anybody answer me why you think this theory is problematic? What do we think is wrong with this theory? Are there any things that this theory cannot explain? Yes. There, there was somebody put their mic on. Do you want to give an answer? Okay, then I'm going to stop sharing and I'm going to start to call on people. Yes, there's a hand. If you've put your hand up, you can give an answer. Um, no, I had my hand up for a comment earlier on, Okay. Um, but, but I can wait till the end. Okay. Do you want to try and give an answer for this one so long, and then we'll we'll take your comment later? Um, okay, I, I think the theory, um, well, it, it does not work if they spend so much money on on keeping people in prison instead of trying to put up prevention measures that could probably um, impart knowledge on people and have them avoid um, doing such crimes in the first place. Okay, I think that that's uh, an important point. Um, I think that certainly uh, dealing with uh, information and, and understandings um, of What's happening is, is key, yes. Okay, there's another hand. Uh, I think the theory doesn't explain why people who do end up in prison and come out, uh, they commit crimes again because if the punishment is supposed to outweigh uh, the crime itself or the benefit itself, then why do they end up re-entering prison again? because they should be able to judge now that um, the punishment outweighs the benefit, but instead you get people ending up in prison and then they release and they recommit crimes. So the theory doesn't actually explain that part. Yes, I think that's a very, very um, insightful comment. Thank you very much. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Um, I think that this theory is not dealing with the psychological problems of people who are committing crimes. Um, we're not looking at the bigger problem and seeing why they're causing these crimes, what happened in their past lives and so forth, in the, in the past, in their lives rather, um, that has now led them to committing such crimes. Instead, we have, or this is a very black and white, white approach where you've done something wrong, you need to sit in the corner and think about what you've done. And once you've, once you've finished, you can come out and go on as normal. Yeah. I think that's a lovely example. Thank you very much. 
Yeah, I do think that it doesn't address the the roots of that for that individual. Um, yeah, certainly. So we 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 don't know why these individuals um, are taking that route to to addressing whatever things they don't have in society. So why are they not? Um, let's say, for example, that they need a car. Why are they not? finding alternative ways to, to get access to a car? Um, why, why is crime and violence the answer? Yeah. There was another hand. Do you want to say something? Yeah, yes, ma'am. Uh, good, good evening. So, uh, with this theory, no, I didn't get it clearly because I came late, but what I get uh, partially is that uh, it doesn't deal with the uh, with the cause of the problem that put people in prison. Uh, like, for example, the people who commit crimes uh, and then they'll go to prison. And maybe if we talk about the issue of gender-based violence, uh, people who go to prison by killing their partners, uh, I think it doesn't go deep to the cause. Uh, let's say why people are, who have, have so many men who kill their partners, you know, yeah. Okay, um, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about gender-based violence in this course, so I don't want to talk too much about it now, but I think you're absolutely right that, that, that gender-based violence isn't explained by this theory. Um, so this theory can't explain crimes of passion, um, which, uh, you know, like just people getting angry. There's no benefit for killing your partner, Right. I can't see a gain from that. Um, I mean, maybe you guys can think of some examples of, of benefits for people to kill their partner. But I think that that kind of crime of passion isn't, is precisely not about getting a gain. It's, it's a, a moment of anger or it's, um, you know, it's certain kinds of frustrations that are, are coming to the surface that in that, in that moment, um, it escalates because the violence is um, is so normalized in those gendered relationships. So I don't think that that, that um, is explained by this theory. So that's a very strong point that you're making. Um, so basically what we're saying is, is that this theory can't explain all instances of, of crime and violence. It certainly can't explain crime, uh, crimes of passion or gender-based violence. It doesn't really give us a clear understanding of the causes of, of individual violence, so what those psychological causes might be um, or the other kinds of contextual causes that might lead people to, to, to commit crime and violence. And... Beyond the individual, because remember, we, we don't only want to think about the individual in this course. Beyond the individual, it also doesn't let us understand what is happening at the collective level that uh, facilitates the kind of crime and violence that we're seeing. So, so why is it that we're seeing the same kinds of crime and violence happening again and again. And certainly that example of femicide, of killing one's uh, partner, of women being killed by their, by their loved ones. That, that This theory just doesn't explain that. Um, and we want to think not only of what 
happens to that individual to commit this crime, but we also want to think of what happens in this society that, that allows that kind of crime and violence to happen. And then, of course, we, we know that, it, that actually the, the justice system doesn't prevent crime, that it, it doesn't, uh, you know, the, the, you, could, you could give somebody the death penalty, um, which um, we may talk about more in the uh, coming weeks, but just so you know, I don't support at all. Um, but even if we were to have that in society, it wouldn't, in fact, prevent crime and violence in the ways that most people, when they talk about the death penalty, think that it will. Um, that, in fact, if you look at the U.S., even where there is, in the, in the states where there is the death penalty, you continue to see gun violence and other kinds of um, social violence because you could give the worst penalty possible. If the conditions for crime and violence exist, people will continue to commit crime and violence. Um, and so if somebody is hungry, they will steal the bread, even if it means they get 100 years in jail, because that hunger and the, the, the conditions that, that are, are in their present lives are so uh, pressing. Um, and... Obviously, as I've said before, um, people need to be accountable for crime and violence, regardless of whether it's stealing bread or whatever, but we need to also consider the conditions in which that is happening. Okay, there's two hands. I saw Mdunge first and then Mflongo. You can ask a question. Uh, yeah. And uh, ladies first, they can go Mflongo. Okay, thank you. Okay, Mflongo. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask first, um, there's an article that I saw, I think it came out late last year, where they were investigating how private hospitals um, perform cesarean birth to their patients when it's actually not necessarily just because doctors want to cash in on on the big bit. Um, yes, so... Uh, I, I'm not sure if I heard the end of that, but um, yes. So, so people um, are being violated in lots of kinds of ways in society. I mean, I don't, I don't know the story of the cesarean births, but um, I, I recently saw an article about um, healthcare uh, and the ways that. Uh, people are abusing the healthcare system by making elderly people who are on their deathbeds go through unnecessary procedures that are, you know, really painful um, just because they'll get the medical aid benefits from that. So it's a similar kind of story that, you know, it's profit over individual well-being. And, and do we consider that violence? I, I do. Um, because... We're, we're, we're tolerating um, individual harm um, as, a, as an, a, an embedded part of our system. Okay, if I can just ask you to mute your, yeah, this feedback. Um, so where there is harm in society, we need to, to think about what the causes are of that. Um, I think those examples of like the caesareans and the, the elder, elder abuse are more in line with the rational self-interest theory because people are doing it for straightforward greed and for, for profit. Um, 
So it's much easier to explain that using the rational self-interest theory. Um, but other examples of crime and violence are less uh, obviously explained by that, by that theory. Um, I know also I'd heard an example of not caesareans, but um, of childbirth generally where like nurses were sitting on people's bellies to try and push babies out. And then both the infant and the mother was dying. There was a a case of a an infant being beheaded in a hospital during labor. It's honestly some of the stories are shocking in their cruelty. Um, and and those things are are not a coincidence. And we need to try and understand why and how we live in a world where where those kinds of things can happen. Okay, Mdunge, um, let's let's go to your comment or question. Yeah, oh, yes, ma'am. Uh, so, earlier you also talked about... Uh, oh, okay. Oh, so I wanted to also comment uh, about the equality of justice, uh, that when uh, these cases happen, you sometimes find that that uh, especially when you talk about the gender-based violent cases, that uh, we we do not deal, deal them, you know, equally uh, when it comes to men and women. There are some other people who are treated uh, in a different way, like when men go into police station and report cases, and uh, sometimes we find out that the reason why. Uh, you find uh, many like men, like for example, uh, there will, so, sometimes there will, there will be cases where a man will date a, a, a woman and then maybe they can have kids. And if a man find out at later days that uh, these kids are not his, uh, they're from another man, and then when he he does something and then they will take him into prison without considering, without considering, you know, the cause of it. So I was, I wanted to talk also about the quality of justice, that when men go and report uh, cases that deal with their relationships, they are not taken seriously. And, they are, and this theory is not also, uh, our, our, I was also saying, the, uh, uh, this theory should also focus on the cause of these problems. Hmm. Um, look, we're going to talk a lot about gender-based violence later. And like I say, I, I, I think you're right in, in saying that this theory doesn't uh, address gender-based violence. I think you're, you're completely right on the money there. Um, but in terms of the, the discrepancies between men and women and the, and the treatment within the justice system, I think that there's a lot for us to unpack, like a lot. Um, because I... I don't think women have it easy with the justice system at all. Um, I I once went to a, a radio station where um, the police, one of the police ministers, was talking, and we were talking about gender-based violence. And one of the the examples she gave on that particular occasion was that if women report gender-based violence, that um, that they have to take a form home with them and come back after they've completed the form. And 
I don't know any person who's experienced gender-based violence who's been strong enough to go to a police station, who's going to take a form home to where she's being abused and then go back to the, the police station the next day. Um, it's just, it, it just doesn't make sense as a practice. So um, while I do recognize discrepancies in the ways that uh, genders are treated, I, I'm not saying that men or women have it easier or harder. I think that they are different challenges that each gender is experiencing. And, and that, in fact, um, the majority of gender-based violence is still being experienced by women. So when we talk about, for example, a woman who's been unfaithful, that for me is not gender-based violence. So that is not... Um, that's just not gender-based violence. Uh, that, that may be a, re a major relationship hurdle. That may be completely immoral. Um, it may be lots of things, but it is not gender-based violence. Um, and uh, I'm not sure, unless the woman is then also beating the man up, whether there would be a reason for the man to take that to the police station to begin with. Um, so we need to also distinguish what we're talking about when we're talking about gender-based violence. And this may be a nice place for us to start to do something that I did last year and that blew my mind away. So I want to do some, an exercise with you all and I want to see what the outcomes are. So, um, I want you all, if you've got a piece of paper in front of you and a pencil, can I ask you to write down everything you fear? It doesn't matter what it is. It could be that you, you're worried about your exams or you're worried about um, not having enough data to, to get through this meeting. Um, whatever your fears are in this world, any fears that you have, nobody's going to see it unless you, you're comfortable to share. Um, but I want you to write down in front of you what are your fears? Any fears that you may have. So I'm going to give you one minute to write down your fears. Is everybody doing that? Okay, yeah, thank you. Okay, just 10 more seconds, so write down any last ones you can think of. You can obviously add to it later. Um, there's, you can continue to think about what your fears might be as we continue with the course. But just for today, write down what you can think of right now. Okay, 
Is anybody willing to share any of your fears? Anybody um, comfortable sharing any of the fears that they may have? Okay, yes, I see a hand. You can, you can share. Yeah, Fahida? Um, so I've got one, two, three, four, five that I've written down. And the first one is men. And it ties into the second one, being driving alone. Okay. Um, and then the rest is snakes, being broke, and not being able to pay my rent. So, yeah. Okay. Important, important fears. And thank you so much for sharing that. Um, anybody else want to share their fears? Um, Flongo, I saw your hand next. I see there's some more hands. We'll get to, we'll go around to all of them. Um, okay, I have four. The first one is being unemployed or failing generally in life. Um, the next one is poverty. I'm, I'm so afraid of, of poverty. And then the third one is being in an abusive relationship. And the last one, because I am a mother, um, it's having my children being trafficked or harmed in any way. Okay, thank you very much for sharing. Um, who else's hands are up? Let me just have a look. Um, uh, Ngobo, I saw your hand first, and then uh, Dunge. Oh, I have a fear of most yeah okay thank you so much um thank you the, uh, for sharing okay um Dunge, you were next yes ma'am i think my biggest fear uh, is to be i don't want to be a poor man you know i i, I wanna I fear uh, not being employed. Uh, as we are seeing in our industry, that uh, many people are getting retrenched. So I want to be like a, a man who is financially stable because if you are stable, everything becomes stable. Even women, you can't have women problems if, if you are financially stable. There is no woman who can cheat on you if you can. You know, if you are stable, you provide with everything. So. If you are financially stable as a man, everything becomes cool. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Does anybody else want to share any of their fears? Any any that haven't been included so far? Um, yes, ma'am. Yes, sure. Uh, uh, the, I wrote two. Uh, the first one is not being able to graduate at the end of this course. And number two, um, the fear of not being able to provide for myself and my family. Okay, thank you very much for sharing. Um, okay, there's some some comments in the in the chat as well. Um, the thing of being broke and poverty is serious, guys. Hunger is scary. My fear is failure, poverty, and death. Um, I mean, there's some very serious. Fears coming up here. I fear rape more than anything. Okay, very, very important um, in the context. Um, were there any other hands? Let me just check. Uh, Nobo, do you have any um, other comments? Your hand is still up. Nobo? Yes, yes. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity. 
My only fear is uh, the issue of uh, the economic sector of, uh, of the world, I would say. Because it seems to support those who are having means of capital and continue to oppress and uh, put us in a miserable situation, more especially those who are vulnerable. For example, I think in Africa, most the, the, the southern part continues to be seen as the most vulnerable um, place, I would say, um, in the world or in the continent, because uh, even the, 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 the northern countries seem to look at us or uh, see us as if we are the most poor countries, yet we are having resources that are being... Um, so it's, it's like we are being exploited by those who are having means of power. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much for, for that comment. Uh, Bridget, your hand is up. Do you want to comment? Uh, yes. Um, I fear death um, because I don't know what's on the other side of death. I fear for my family's safety. Yeah, that's all. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, there's some more comments, fear, failure, um, relating to some of the other comments. Yes, okay. Um, any other any other input? Anybody else want to share their fears? Okay, I think we've got a very nice um, range of fears being shared, and I thank everybody who was brave enough to share them. Um, so we've got a fear of failure, of not graduating, of not performing, of not doing well in life. We've got um, the fear of, um, of, of providing uh, for oneself and one's family, so the, the threats of poverty, of being poor, of not being able to finance themselves. That's also linked to uh, developmental issues within uh, different regions. Um, we've got fears related to hunger and to... Um, to one's children, and then and then coming out of this, we've got the fear of men and of rape and of abuse, um, of children being trafficked. So we've got that as a as an angle in here as well, and then death. And I mean, death is the most you know that's that's got to be the biggest fear of all. Um, you know, why are young people worried about death? Um, is it because there's an actual threat of death? Um, all around us, and I think that 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 is a very unfortunate and sad reality. Is is that probably it's because it is. Now I'm I'm curious, um, and I and I'm going to ask this, and I'm not sure if I'll get a response, but I'm curious uh, about the men in the in the group. Did any of you put that you fear women? Anybody, any men put down that they fear women? No, we did not, but we do fear them. <laughs> Why do you fear them? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I'm taking your point seriously, so I'm sorry that I'm laughing. Um, but um, <laughs> why do you fear women? Okay. Um, maybe we can unpack that some more as we go through the course. Um, I'm curious to know what the fear is. Um, 
Last year when I did this exercise, I got two responses. I mean, we didn't unpack it in quite this detail because I think people were worried about sharing too much. But, but what was obvious last year is that men were scared of being rejected and women were scared of being killed. And there's a very big difference in those two fears. Um, and that because of the, the pressure on men to not be rejected, that we, we live in, we're living in a world where um, certain kinds of violence comes from that fear of rejection. Um, and we need to interrogate what that fear of rejection is about because is it more important than women's lives um, or their, their body integrity in relation to their sexual choices, for example. So, so we need to, to, to unpack some of this. But my next question then is, do we think that all of these things you are scared of are violence? Do we think that they are the, the result of violence? Do we think that poverty is about violence? Do we think that uh, inequality is about violence? Do we think that the, the threat to women and to children is about violence? Do we think that not being uh, certain about um, being successful in life or that, that there's the, the threat of hunger and poverty that you're constantly having to navigate, do we think that that's about violence? Because actually, in this course, that's what we're saying. is We're saying that these are violence. And they're not the kind of violence that we, we normally talk about. It's not about one person being mean to you and trying to harm you specifically. But it's about a system that is designed to be unequal and therefore causes harm to whole groups of people, whole societies, to... Um, the, the order of, of social life and therefore is a kind of violence. The fact that we see these developmental differences between the North and the South comes from a history of violence, of colonial violence, and is perpetuated and continued by um, present modern institutional structural inequalities that are not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that people in the North have opportunities that we don't. It's very much built into how the, the world works. So we need to then unpack how the world works to address the kinds of violence that are the consequence of those decisions. Because what is happening to you, these fears that you have, are not just your own. You can see lots of people share these fears. And they are not just an accident. They're not just there because that is what's normal. That young people should be so scared that they're going to live in poverty for the rest of their lives. Or that, that people should be so scared of being raped or, or dying. That, that's not normal. We, we should be able to live in a world where those things are not 
at the forefront of our thinking and our fears every day. Okay, there is a hand um, if you want to ask a question. Uh, the hand is gone. Does that mean the question is gone? Okay, there's another hand. Kamalo, do you want to ask? Yes, I want to ask you uh, specifically yeah. a question. Sure. Uh, I regard uh, inequality and poverty as one of the biggest uh, violence in South Africa. Yes. So my question to you uh, is that do you think uh, inequality in South Africa will have, will 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 ever end or it is just uh, going to continue until the end of time i i can't predict what will happen um i i i live in the in the belief that it is possible to end inequality and poverty in south africa and i work my my professional career is built off of that belief and that that um, commitment to that kind of change, to seeing that kind of change in the world, um, and and I really uh, pray and hope that it will happen in my lifetime, uh, and I, I pray and hope that it will happen in yours as well, but. Um, I don't know. I think that it involves a very substantial commitment um, from everyone in order to see the change that we were hoping for. And um, it's when I say everyone, I don't only include all South Africans. I also include an international community that would have to invest in an economic model that looks different to what it currently looks like. And the only way that that can happen is as if we bring enough awareness globally to the inequalities that we're seeing um, so that that kind of change can happen. Um, I, I must say I was really excited as well as incredibly, uh, like... Uh, like anxious at the start of the pandemic with the hope that that would push us into thinking about and doing things differently um, economically in the world and to protect individual lives and to protect the environment in new kinds of ways. Um, and I'm very sad to see that that didn't happen in the way that I'd, I'd hoped for. But Perhaps it's, it's a, a start to that conversation of thinking about how to engage with the economic structures and with individual lives in new kinds of ways. Um, and yeah, I think that we all have to participate in that. Okay, um, I hope that answers the question. I mean, it's not... It's not a, a committed yes, and it's also not a committed no. I think that it's very much dependent on what we do and how, how invested we are in seeing that change. Okay, there's another hand, Fahida. Did you have a question? 
Okay, the hand is gone. Um, okay, so I'm just going to, to share the last slides then. Yes, ask your question, please. Sorry, um, no, I was speaking to the question that was asked to you. Um, and then I think my I think I have more of a comment than a question. And then speaking to the fact that you mentioned awareness um, around the issues of injustice. I think I think that injustice is justice towards equality is going to take a very 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 long time. Um, and I think that awareness is not a is not a problem at all. I think. Self-awareness more, yes, um, and and I think it's going to be difficult for these changes to occur because people find it very difficult to change and are afraid of change. So yeah, yeah, I I, I agree with the point about change. I'm not sure about the point of awareness. I think that as we go through this course, I think you'll all start to become slightly differently aware of crime and violence and the, and the ways that it's um, situated in relation to the inequalities within the context. So there's always room to, to further unpack um, our understandings and awareness of, of how the world works. Um, even, even with a PhD, I don't feel like I'm a master of, of all of that um, yet. So... It's it's a constant sort of process of, of learning and unlearning what I think about the world. Um so so yes, I think I think awareness is is relevant. And I think that the example that comes to my mind is um is one that may be unpopular and, it, and that's okay. Um is a couple of years ago a woman in uh in Kandla was uh interviewed and the journalist asked her a question about um, the fact that there was, at that point, I'm not sure uh, what, what it is at the moment, but at that point there was no clinic within the community, but there was a private clinic within uh, Azuma's homestead. And um, her response to that was that Zuma had earned that, that he, he had earned the, the right to have that, you know, the things that she herself didn't. And I, I think that the link between, you know, the fact that that actually individuals are not getting the services or the, or the kinds of opportunities in life that they deserve, not, not because of Zuma. I, I have very little interest in, in, in Zuma as a topic. But because of the ways that wealth is being distributed, because of the ways that corruption happens because of the ways that um, things are privatized in some spaces and, and only certain people can have access to them, that those decisions and those, those things that we allow and agree, uh, collectively agree to as being, you know, people deserve that. If you um, build Amazon as a company, you deserve to earn more money than, than uh, most countries have as, as wealth. Well, do you really deserve that? Is that a normal thing that that somebody is can be worth so much money? Um, we we kind of have become so normalized into thinking about certain things as being a certain kind of way that um, 
that we don't see the implications. The implication of, of people having more than they need is, is that other people have less than they need. That's the, that's the reality. And so w whether it's Zuma or, or uh, Bezos or whoever, that when people have more than they need, other people have less than they need. And we need to stop seeing that as being normal. Um, we need to really interrogate that because that's a kind of economic violence that um, we actually all support through the ways that we think about it. Okay, there's a, there's a hand. I'll take the comment. I think this will be our last comment and then we'll go back to the slides. Okay, there's two hands. These are the last two comments. Uh, yes, ma'am. So I, I, I have a, a question and a comment. So uh, my first question is that you talk about awareness. And uh, I wanted, I was curious to know that uh, what uh, kind of awareness are you talking about? Uh, because maybe if you can specify for you, um, I think we're aware of our challenges. We're we are all aware of uh, our economic systems, uh, corruption that is happening, uh, our, our, our poverty, everything, you know. So what uh, kind of awareness are you talking about? And also my my comment, uh, my second comment is that I think you also talk about uh, uh, George Bezos uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, these people who are... are uh, rich and have money. So I think uh, another problem, because Takasani asked about how we can uh, solve the issue of inequality in this country. And I think it would be, it, it, uh, and, uh, that uh, question needs uh, more work on it, uh, because uh, even our, it, it doesn't also need, uh, our, you know, our, yes, Okay, so, you, so uh, I didn't... Yes, I wanted to say that, you know, uh, I think our, we, we, we also need uh, to uh, create something that is our own uh, because uh, we thought when we get freedom that we're going to also be uh, economically, uh, like, uh, independent. Okay. Um, sure. So let me address those. I mean, awareness is a, is a tricky term for me. Um, and I, I, I think in the course of the, of the module, hopefully we will unpack exactly what the, it means. But, um, I think what I'm, I'm more talking about is the kind of critical awareness of, of the causes and, uh, strategies for change. So I'm not just talking about do you know what the problem is. I'm also talking about how to how to really understand what that problem is about and and how to address it. We're going to keep talking about that. So I don't want to touch too much on on all of the the answers for that at this point because I think certainly by the end of this course you should have a, a sense of what your contribution is going to be to. Um, to change in this area as well. Um, the thing about Bezos and about economic independence, I think that that um, has to be at the forefront of conversations about where South Africa is 
and um, and what some of the, the social problems are. So our economic position in the globe, our economic position in relation to our partners in in BRICS, in the Commonwealth, in other kinds of the UN, uh, African African nation, that that our our role economically needs to be um, uh, really interrogated, and um, and to find a model that works best for us and not for for others, um, and that very much has to be something that we're doing and. And I'm not an economist. I don't know what the solution to that is. But I think we need to take very seriously the economic um, stuff that is underpinning the nature of, of our context.